Oh, I don't think there is a U.S. energy policy. I think at the federal level, um, you have this sort of incoherent support for fossil fuels uh, and the rollback of any efficiency standards. Uh, I think it, in some states, California, Massachusetts, New York, there is uh, a shift toward renewables. Rhode Island wants to be have a power system that's 100% decarbonized by 2030. Impossible, but ambitious. So I think really we do not have an energy policy. We have a bunch of different policies. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm coming to you today remotely, not from our studio on the Harvard campus, but remotely from my home in Newton, Massachusetts. And my guest is coming to you from his home in Boston, Massachusetts. And indeed, today we're very fortunate to have with us Richard Schmollensee, the Howard W. Johnson Professor of Management and Professor of Economics Emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology where he was dean of the MIT Sloan School of Management for 10 years and director of the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research for 12 years. Dick's research and teaching have been in multiple areas of application of industrial organization, including antitrust, regulatory, energy, and environmental policies. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a director of the National Bureau of Economic Research and chairman emeritus of the board of directors of Resources for the Future. And I'm very pleased to say that Dick is also an associate scholar of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. And in recent years, he's been my frequent co-author. In addition to all of that, during a leave of absence from MIT, he served as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors in the George H.W. Bush administration. Welcome, Dick. Thank you, and thank you for that extraordinarily kind introduction. Well, I only went through a small part of your CV or else I would have taken up our full <laughs> 30 minutes of time. Uh, before we talk about your current thinking about energy, environment, and climate change policy, uh, I'd like to go back to how you came to be where you are and, and where you've been through your career. And when I say go back, I really do mean go way back. I'd like to start with where did you grow up? I grew up in Belleville, Illinois, which is um, uh, in southern Illinois near St. Louis. It's half a commuter a town for St. Louis. Since you drive west, you don't drive into the rising or setting sun. Uh, and half a uh, agricultural center where people get their cars and tractors worked on. So um, was primary school in the area there for you? Oh yeah, primary, high school, yeah. So you graduated from high school there and then you went off to college at MIT, is that right? I did. Uh, I had no particular idea what I wanted to do. I was pretty sure I wanted to get out of Belleville, um, but I was good at math and good at science and people said oh you should become an engineer you should go to mit it's a great engineering school i had no clear idea what that meant i had an uncle who was an engineer uh his work sounded kind of interesting so i went off to mit 
But then somehow you went from entering thinking about engineering to graduating in economics, politics, and science, I see. Well, I found out pretty early on, A, I really hated chemistry, I have to say. I don't know why, but I hated chemistry. And I was not fond of lab work. And I thought, let's see, if being an engineer means this is what I do all the time, um, that doesn't sound like fun. And for reasons I cannot recall at all, I took an economics course to fill a hole in my second semester freshman schedule. And I thought, this is interesting stuff. It was a, it was mainly macro, but I thought, oh, this is sort of quantitative, and it's about policy, and I'm interested in policy, so maybe this is something I could do. And then I thought about transferring. I did, because it's you know mostly an engineering science school, but I liked the people I was living with. I liked being in Boston. It wasn't clear where else I could go, and I had discovered economics, and it's a right. great economics department. So now, now from there, did you? directly go on to graduate school at MIT, or did, were you well, off somewhere? No, I went directly on. This was the Vietnam era, mm -hmm. and you didn't kind of go off and do something <laughs> that wasn't protected. So I see. I, I went, to, went to graduate school in economics. I, I, I didn't have any money. I thought I was going to go to business school, but there were really no scholarships or fellowships available at business schools, but there was pretty generous support. Mm -hmm. uh, in economics, I applied to MIT, I applied to Yale, a uh, senior f faculty member at MIT said, why do you want to stay here? Being a smart kid, I said, I'd like to meet the senior faculty. Uh, <laughs> right. That didn't offend them enough yeah. to not admit me, so they did, and uh, it worked out well. And who were your faculty advisors, your dissertation committee? My dissertation committee, well, I was, I was going to write a dissertation on production inventory behavior. And all I needed was for the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics or the census, I forget which one, to let me have confidential access to three-digit data because two-digit data uh, made no sense. It's too broad. And I wasted six months in correspondence with them. And they said no. And I wandered the hall depressed and saw a card saying, we'd like somebody to study advertising. Huh. Signed by Frank Fisher, wow. Maury Edelman, and Evzi Domar. And wow. they became my committee. Frank was my main advisor. Uh, and I worked on advertising. That's a powerful committee. And what was good. your dissertation? What was it on? Well, it was a... Sort of in the MIT style, there was some. It was a. It was a, basically a collection of papers. It it ended up coming out as a book, um, but uh, it was a collect, collection of papers. I looked at cigarette advertising. Uh, I looked at aggregate advertising spending and consumption. I had some theoretical models. I um, I think the main thrust of the thesis was that you can't treat advertising in any model as something that kind of is exogenous that comes from the sky. It's something mm -hmm. that firms decide. So you need to have some model of firm decision to put next to a model of what advertising does. And, you know, that's not one of the great insights of the age, but uh, made a decent book. And what was your first job then out of graduate school? Well, it was not a great year, uh, I must say. Uh, I ended up at the University of California, San Diego. I had... Uh, I had an offer from Wisconsin. I said, gee, I, 
I don't know if I want to go to a big school in the Midwest. Uh, I had an interview at Princeton, and the guy who had interviewed me there visited UC San Diego that year. And after about three or four months, nice guy, he said, what do you remember about that interview? I said, I thought it was fine. He said, well, I went back to Princeton and said, anybody but Schmollensee. So this, con- this confirmed my interviewing skills. Wow. But, uh, but <laughs> he, he became a friend and, you know, a good colleague. Uh-huh. Right. And I had, I had seven good years at San Diego, one of which I spent uh, uh, on leave in a fellowship in Europe. Did you go directly to MIT at that point? I did. I did. Um, to the Sloan School of Management. I went to the Sloan School. It was funny. You know, UC San Diego at that point, the economics department had, oh, I'd have to do a head count, uh, but maybe eight people, maybe 10 people. It was a very small department, a close department. I was getting work done after an adjustment period. We were enjoying mm-hmm. living there. Mm-hmm. Rest, restaurants were opening, which there weren't many of at the start. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, well, you got an offer from MIT. Congratulations. When are you moving? And it was actually a hard decision. But uh, I wanted to see if I could, uh, could play in the big leagues, as I said, and so mm-hmm. we took it. And given the topic, at least of your dissertation, certainly a business school would seem to be a very appropriate home at that point. Well, they, they uh, hired me, as far as I can tell, to replace Paul McAvoy, who was a uh-huh. student of regulation. Right. And I had done some work on regulation, but not that much. And I wasn't Paul McAvoy. But, you know, you, always, you never know what you're getting when you hire somebody. So. But then studying regulation is indeed the direction that you wound up going. I ended up going in that direction, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't done much. Uh, I, I wasn't – well, Paul had been a mentor. Uh, mm-hmm. He'd left before I went to graduate school, but he advised my undergraduate thesis. And in many ways, I modeled my style of work after his. Mm -hmm. So he was an important influence. Uh, Although, again, you know, nobody's a clone of anybody else. Right, right. You know, there's so much we can talk about. But before we get into your research and also your comments on the current state of energy, environmental and climate change policy, I'd be very interested, and I think our listeners will be interested, to hear something about your experiences at CEA, at the Council of Economic Advisors. You know, what did you like about it, and what did you find not so enjoyable? Well, I had, I must say, a great experience. I had been a summer intern in the summer of 1967 and had quite enjoyed it. I liked the intensity of the place. Uh, and so when I got a chance to, to join as a member, I thought it was uh, a great opportunity. I have to say, I mean, I, I'm sort of a dilettante, so I enjoyed uh, being engaged in a wide variety of issues. Uh, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the, occasionally actually making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, and the work on the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 uh, was uh, intense, uh, uh, rewarding. What did I not like? Well, you know, <laughs> any administration, like any organization, as it, as it turns out, is composed of human beings. And some of them are easier to get along with than right. others. Right. Mostly, I thought we had a great staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chairman and the two of us members mm-hmm. uh, were pretty congenial. I can only recall one screaming match I had. That's not bad. Uh, for for two pretty intense years, I um, it, this was before email, mm-hmm. which meant when I left the office, I was gone. Mm-hmm. So it was it was uh, you know my family actually saw a lot of me. I'd not 
I would I would leave home at you know 7:30 in the morning, get home at 7:30 at night. But other than that, and it, of course, the weekends when we wrote the report, uh, I was in the office all the time. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed the sense of of being close to uh, decision making, not. Mm-hmm not being political but but being close enough and mm-hmm. and having enough connections that on things i cared about and knew something about uh, i was um in, in in the words of hamilton in the room when it happened exactly uh, fairly often and uh didn't always go my way but uh i i had the feeling i was making a difference and do you, re- do you remember how you first got pulled in to work on the clean air act amendments in 1990 who was it that pulled you in, or how did you hear about it? There were sort of two layers. Um, I, I heard about the acid rain program mm-hmm. uh, pretty early on because, you know, that was like economics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Indeed. And, and the EDF folks were mm-hmm. were in um, in evidence, and um, a Boyden Gray right. uh, was an advocate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember the first meetings I was in, but I was in meetings on the subject. And then what what really pulled me in was when we uh, the administration wrote its bill and sent it sent it up to Congress, and it, it went to the Senate initially. And um, the president threatened a veto if the final bill was more than 10% more expensive than what he had sent up. Mm-hmm. Now, this is 1990, and we're talking about costs in, I think, 2005. And this is sort of science fiction, but somebody had to make the determination. Mm-hmm. And that was me, mm-hmm. assisted by, you know, an economist, that's close to being an accountant, uh, assisted mm-hmm. by Howard Grinspect, whom I expect uh-huh. you know, and uh, yes, yes. and uh, people in EPA and people in the Department of Energy, and mm-hmm. H- Howard would referee these fights, and several of us would, uh, somewhat more senior, would step in, but we were costing this bill, and um, that was that was fairly intense. I was in the in the room in the Senate negotiating sessions, which covered as it happened, the whole bill, a fair amount of which I didn't know anything about. But, uh, you know, many memorable moments. George Mitchell was running that show. And George Mitchell was extraordinarily impressive, I have to say, mm-hmm. uh, on a number of dimensions. One great moment, I'll give you one great moment. It's a classic congressional moment. On some issue, how many cities had to be in attainment or out of attainment or something, we had said, uh, I don't know, 11, and the other side had said nine, and Senator Bro from Louisiana said, let's see, you say 11, they say nine. Is there a number in between? <laughs> <laughs> Deal done. Right, uh, right. So, right. I, you know, that's the experience of a lifetime. Um, right. Yeah. Now, it was a very, very, very special time. You know, you said something at the beginning, which ought not be taken for granted. You you mentioned that it was an administration bill sent to the Congress coming from a Republican White House to a Democratic Congress. 
So both in regards of a administration writing the legislation and in regards from environmental legislation coming from a Republican administration, that's not something that our younger listeners would certainly anticipate. No, I mean, it's those were the days, right? I mean, it was clear. That's what led to the 77 amendments. It was clear that there were things that needed to be fixed in the Clean Air Act. It was also clear that there was a lot of pressure to do something about acid rain, whether the pressure was justified or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Bush had a home in Maine. George Mitchell was from Maine. There was pressure from the Canadians. And in walks EDF, basically, with this market-based solution, with a lot of mm-hmm. help from you, with this market-based mm-hmm. solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people lit up at that. Republicans lit up at that. Uh, right. We can deal with this and be innovative and not be crazy. The, the danger, as perceived uh, uh, by the administration, and I think properly, and the reason they had that cost test was if you, if you go to the Hill as in a Republican administration with an environmental bill, what you expect to hear from the Democrats is, this isn't adequate, it doesn't go far enough, we need mm-hmm. to be stricter, blah, right. blah, blah, and yeah. all of a sudden you, you swing uh, for the fences. So th- the notion was, you know, let's, let's focus on cost, focus on doing stuff, focus on cost, and clean things up. I mean, this mm-hmm. is what should have happened with the Affordable Care Act, right? I mean, everybody says, yeah. well, you know, that was a good start, but there are 27 things that need to be fixed in that bill. Well, they can't do it. They can't yeah. sit down and negotiate a fix, right. which is really right. sad. Yeah. You, you look at the difference on the vote. You're very familiar with this. The difference on the voting for the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, which was something like 96% of Democrats, 87 or 90% of Republicans in favor, compared with the Waxman-Markey legislation in the Obama uh, years, the climate legislation. And that was, again, about 95% of Democrats. And I think it was something like four or five members of the House who were Republicans voted for it. Tremendous difference. Well, I have to share share two experiences with you uh, in that regard. First is, in my role as auditor, uh, I was asked to address the Senate Republican Caucus. Mm-hmm. So I was called in. I, you know, I've been in I've been in town for about a year. Uh, I don't I'm not a Washington uh, native, but I stand up in front of them, and Dole asks me, you know, you're you're in charge of uh, verifying this the cost of this bill. Does it exceed the president's limit? And knowing how shaky all of our estimates, mm-hmm. plus or minus are, I said, it does not, sir. This bill is within the president's limit. And I looked them all in the eye uh-huh. and left. And about a year and a half ago, I was in Washington for an RFF board meeting, and I ran into Bob Dole. Mm-hmm. Bob Dole sitting in a wheelchair at yeah. the World War II Memorial. And we had... Uh, a wonderful short conversation reminiscing about the days when you could actually have negotiations Mm -hmm. and work across the aisle. He said, yeah, we sure could use that. (laughs) Uh, And he remembered, he he did remember that meeting. Yeah, it's a new world. Let's turn to your research in economics before we turn to energy and environmental policy. And I want to ask you a question that I suppose is like asking you to identify your favorite child. Um, what is the one publication that you are most proud of? And of course, present company of co-authors excluded. 
What's the one publication you're most proud of? Wow. From a very long CV. Uh, I guess I go back to a, to a paper I did, um, oh, in the early 80s, using the Federal Reserve line of business data, and I'll go quickly because this is completely orthogonal to anything we will talk about. Mm -hmm. But it was the question of, well, if you look at differences between profitability of lines of business, are they driven by uh, industry effects, firm effects, or market share effects? And I I figured out a way to partition the, the variance. And, you know, it was one of these papers where I had no idea what I was going to find, and I figured whatever I find will be interesting. And, and I had a research assistant in Washington, sent him down to Washington to work with the data since they weren't allowed out of the room. And um, we came back that it was uh, very heavily firm effects. Uh, relatively little market share effect. Well, actually, it's good to hear about that, Dick, because it really demonstrates the remarkable scope of your research within economics, which takes me to think about what you've been focused on in very recent years, not exclusively, but you've been focused a lot on energy and environmental policy. Um, Let's start with energy policy before we talk about climate change policy per se. What's your assessment of the current state of U.S. energy policy? Oh, I don't think there is a U.S. energy policy. I think at the federal level, um, you have this sort of incoherent support for fossil fuels uh, and the rollback of any efficiency standards. Uh, I think in some states, California, Massachusetts, New York, there is uh, a shift toward renewables. Rhode Island wants to be have a power system that's 100% decarbonized by 2030. Impossible, but ambitious. So I think really we do not have an energy policy. We have a bunch of different policies. Now, speaking of that, some work that you've been doing, uh, my first recollection was was with regards to Europe, more recently with regards to the U.S., was taking note or at least examining the potential challenges to going to very high levels of uh, dispatch from renewables in the grid. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. There's a, a project launched under the MIT Energy Initiative called the Future of Storage. And it's concerned with the role energy storage might play in a decarbonized electric power system. Well, to, to address that question, you need to ask, what would a decarbonized electric power system look like? So... I'm with others doing some theory. We've got people who can do modeling, doing modeling. We're talking to uh, 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 engineers of various stripes about various storage technologies. And it, I find it very interesting. It's, it's not stuff I've done before. You know, I, I have a postdoc and I are trying to figure out, well, suppose you had two different storage technologies. What's the dispatch rule? Uh, mm-hmm. Can you make sense of that? Is, is it like base load and peakers? But not really, because uh, marginal costs don't differ much. So it, it, it's very interesting. And then you step back and you say, okay, given the current regulatory systems, and of course we have multiple systems in this country, what would you need to do to drive toward a heavily decarbonized system efficiently? Mm-hmm. Um you need storage to play a role. Uh, what kind of role? What kind of limits? Who should own it? Uh, what about a customer premises storage? You end up coming to the conclusion that the key thing is to get prices right at retail. But 
to, to get that done, uh, there are a number of hurdles to be cleared. So I, I, I have gotten heavily engaged in this topic, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I'm 76 years old, and to find some research that really excites me is a privilege. So I'm, I'm having a good time. That's fantastic. Turning to climate change policy, um, so here the administration uh, seems to have policies. It has positions. <laughs> it's taking actions. What's your assessment of that? Well, it's a disaster. I mean, I think um, that's that's not a hard call. I mean, walking away from Paris, walking away from any sense that it's important that we deal with uh, our emissions, and indeed walking away from the potential federal role in helping states and localities adapt to change. I mean, mm -hmm. adaptation, I think, is inherently local, but there are best practices and sharing that can happen and consciousness raising, if nothing else. But this administration and, and a, a number of Republican governors out there have uh, walked away from it. I mean, have said, well, there's not a problem here, no need to adapt. Florida doesn't have to worry about rising sea levels. That's not going to happen. So uh, I think walking away from Paris, um, I, I, I'm told, and you know better than I, I'm told that um, knowledgeable people from the U.S. government still do show up at negotiating sessions and, and try to contribute, even though obviously it's contra U.S. policy, but they're there as observers and they participate, which is, I guess, the deep state that Trump talks about, but thank heaven for that. I think another four years of this would do sufficient damage to international efforts and just a sense of U.S. credibility that it might be hard to recover from. I think we can recover from these four years. I think it won't be terribly easy. Uh, a lot of momentum has been lost. A lot of bridges have been charred, if not burned. But I think it's possible. But another four years? No, 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 please. I mean, the initial concern, certainly, with the announcement by the president a few years ago of the intention to drop out of the Paris Agreement this coming uh, November, be finalized was that it would have a negative effect on the l large emerging economies of China, India, Brazil, Korea, South Africa, Mexico, Indonesia. There weren't worries that it would negatively affect the Europeans. If anything, it might make them more aggressive. But th the good news, at least in this four-year period, uh, is that other than Brazil, which is because of their own domestic political changes, that it has not caused, at least as far as we can tell, um, those large emerging economies either to step back from their uh, Paris uh, positions uh, or to seek to change them. But eight years would be different. They might well have been able to be more ambitious Correct. Uh, if, if we had been in right. a leadership position instead of a naysaying position. I mean, it's true. Uh, China seems to be moving you can read you can read its actions mm -hmm. one way or another depending on how you like india has not they're still burning a lot of coal uh and so so there's a lot of room and there's indonesia there's a lot of room for more aggressive action mm -hmm. in the developing world which is crucial as you know i mean we can right. do whatever we want to do but it's it's got to be the developing world has to be changed and i think the U.S. sitting on its hands or saying no, yeah, maybe they'll go ahead anyway, but they, uh, they're not going to go ahead as fast uh, and as aggressively and as comfortably. 
Um, yeah, no, I agree, I, I agree with all that. I mean, the the comparison is one that we can't make because it's within an unobservable hypothetical. What would they be doing if, you know, the this administration had not come into power? But I think you're also right that if it goes for another eight years, then the the momentum may really leave the focus on the Paris Agreement, even on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change could easily uh, dissipate. I have to say there was something very, very strange about Trump's withdrawal statement, right? Because he said, mm-hmm. it's not a good deal for the U.S. Right. Well, it was a voluntary commitment. Right. I mean, not a good deal. I mean, uh, the U.S. said we will do X. Well, what, what does withdrawal mean? That we won't do X? That we shouldn't have said we'll do X? I mean, it was just, it was as if it was forced on us. And of course, it hadn't been. Yeah, but but even if it were a bad deal in, in the sense that he meant, I think, which is that the, the Obama administration had negotiated or had submitted in a voluntary sense a bad deal for the U.S., which I don't think it was no. at all. But if, if that had been the case, then what the president could have done, of course, was to have changed the nationally determined contribution rather than dropping out of the Paris Agreement. Precisely. Now, at the same time as the U.S. has been moving in that direction, away from more action, uh, the Europeans are becoming, you know, more aggressive. There seems to be generally in the world over the past four years, certainly a lot more attention to climate change and for sure a lot more climate activism on the ground, in particular from these youth movements. I mean, most prominently is Greta Thunberg, but uh, the students at Harvard, the students I'm sure at MIT are extremely engaged. This is now an era of climate activism among youth. You mentioned earlier the Vietnam period. I I suspect that it's not terribly different than that. What's your reaction to these youth movements that are taking place? Well, I think, I, I love the enthusiasm. Uh, I love the spirit of the Green New Deal, if not the if not the letter of the Green New Deal. Um, but I think it's not yet strategic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, st- students at MIT and elsewhere are very big on divesting fossil fuel companies from university yes. endowments. So what? It's a symbolic action, will have no effect, and they'll fly home for Christmas. So if you want to do something, you got to have, and, and then on the other hand, the Green New Deal, you couldn't get a majority of Democratic votes for that, let alone pass it in Congress. Right. So I, I, I think it is time for that enthusiasm to get channeled. Now, in the case of Vietnam, uh, I think it was sort of okay to say, look, get the hell out. And LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And just push for withdrawal because there was no subtle design here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this is not that kind of problem. It's not, well, if we divest, we'll solve it. No, if we divest, it won't do anything. Well, if we do the Green New Deal, we'll solve it. Well, maybe, but we're not going to do the Green New Deal. So I, I think it's time for that activism to get to get focused but i really am of the look let's figure out what we can do push very hard to do it uh not not go for gestures not go for medicare for all uh but but focus on things that can be done and elect people who will do them i i love the enthusiasm but you know young people don't vote you're a pragmatist 
Sad but true. Yeah. Actually, you know, I certainly applaud it. Um, That's how we get things done. And that's why, you know, I teach what I teach in a school of public policy. Sometimes they use perhaps the unfortunate uh, metaphor of we take people with warm hearts and beat that out of them and instead uh, (laughs) give them the mind instead to go forward and to get something done. Um, was it was it about. was it Shaw that said uh, if you're not a socialist when you're 20 you have no heart and yeah, if you're still right. a socialist when you're yeah. 30 you have no head? Yes, yeah. exactly right, exactly. Well, listen, thank you very much, Dick, for taking time to join us today. Uh, our guest today has been Richard Schmollensee. He is the Howard W. Johnson Professor of Management and Professor of Economics Emeritus at MIT and formerly the Dean of the MIT Sloan School of Management. Please join us again next time for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.